The reading is taken from Matthew chapter 4 and verses 12 to 24. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in the darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness among the people. News spread of him over Syria, and people brought to him those who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralysed, and he healed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much. Um, we're six parts then into uh, what's going to be a pretty long series looking at the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, long because Matthew is one of the longest books in the New Testament, and long because there's, there's a lot of detail. Um, but we have to move fast, because um, I was talking to somebody about this a couple of weeks ago, and they were saying, oh, the, the, the sermons that we were used to were 45 minutes long. And I said, well, some churches get to, to you know, talk 45 minutes to an hour on these passages. We try and do it in 15 to 20, so buckle up. Um, we'll be moving fast. The story so far, um, Matthew has introduced us to an unlikely Messiah, um, means chosen one, God's chosen anointed one. He's given us his surprising genealogy, his sort of family tree, um, his surprising birth family, his birth, surprising birth circumstances, surprising birth witnesses, um, then asylum in a surprising destination, Egypt, um, which you know anything about the Old Testament, going to Egypt is usually meant to be a bad sign in the Old Testament, before returning to settle in a surprising location, Nazareth, um, uh, which is where they are. Then his surprising baptism, um, the perfect God-man needs a baptism for repentance, we looked at that. And then just as he announced his arrival, comes on the scene, his surprising 40-day detour in the wilderness. Mike looked at that last Sunday. Every part of the story is surprising, or at least it would be if Matthew wasn't showing us all along the way how at every turn Jesus is kind of fulfilling prophecy after ancient prophecy from the Jewish scriptures, um, what we call the Old Testament. Prophecies that look forward to God's salvation through this um, chosen, anointed Messiah. Today, then, we pick up the story with Jesus leaving the wilderness 
and uh, beginning his public ministry. Um, do follow along if you've got a Bible or an app, um, or the Bibles along the pews. If you grab one of those, we're on page 968. 968. So John the Baptist, uh, Jesus' cousin, um, he's been put in prison now. And Jesus, this sort of no-name manual laborer from Nazareth, he uh, moves into Capernaum, a modest fishing village on the northern shape. I'll try that again. A modern, a modern, a modest. <laughs> I did get enough sleep last night. I don't know what's going on. Um, a modest fishing village on the northern shore of Lake Galilee. So the stage is uh, set, and um, there's a really kind of important question to ask here. What is Jesus going to preach about? What is his first sermon going to look like? What are the key themes of his message? And, you know, I still remember my first Sunday here uh, two and a half years ago, and heading on for three years ago now. The place had been decorated in orange and white and blue balloons in honor of my football allegiances. Thank you. That meant a lot. Um, you know, back in the day when Luton were just a, a humbly le- newly promoted championship side, uh, favorites for relegation back to League One, how they laughed. Right, Linda? Linda? Linda was at Kenworth Road to see us beat Brighton 4-0 on Tuesday night. Yes. Um, sorry, I won't embarrass you or me by asking if you remember what I preached about on that first sermon. Uh, the truth is I had to look it up myself. It was actually the start of Mark's uh, gospel, and I talked about identity and uh, we're sort of coming out of lockdown, that sort of alpha wave at the time, and how who we are is linked intrinsically into whose we are. That's the primary thing that forms our identity. I think it remains a very relevant topic. So you've had coming on three years of me now, and I'm sure you could name some of my, uh, the themes of my sermons, and I'm, I'm not talking about the illustrations, you know, football, Uganda, or my kids, um, although I generally say less about my kids since they started charging me commission when I share stories about them. But I mean that hopefully this is all about Jesus. It's about his rescue plan and his call on us to follow him as his disciples and figuring out what that means for us in London in 2024. That's my key theme. And I reckon if you ask people what the the core of Jesus's message was, you might end up with some of the following. Maybe it would be some of his ethical teaching. We're coming to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel soon. Maybe it would be about God's love for the lost. There's a, a lot of parables about that. Maybe it would be a radical social agenda. Maybe you'd uh, quote some famous verses around loving your neighbor or even your enemy. Doing to others what they would, you would have them do to you. And all those are valid answers. They're definitely things that Jesus spoke about. But they weren't the key repeated topics. The key theme, the foundation on which all of Jesus' teaching is built, the most repeated idea throughout the Gospels, is found in Jesus' first public words here in Capernaum, which Matthew records in verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the message which underpins everything else that Jesus teaches. It's the basis for all the other teachings. Love your neighbor seems a fairly logical idea in 
the worldview today. You know, if I help you, then I might be able to count on your help tomorrow when I need it. It's a, it's a win-win situation, isn't it? But loving your enemy, that makes very little sense at all unless the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, we need a, a little bit of a history lesson here because kingdom of heaven is a phrase that comes with some baggage. Um, maybe it takes you to second-rate Hollywood blockbusters uh, invoking the Crusades of, of course, you know, if we unpack Jesus' definition of his kingdom, we'll see that it's the very opposite of military conquest. Even kingdom itself, I think, sounds like quite a sort of loaded concept, you know, perhaps historical monarchies and historical injustices and or of course we live in a kingdom ourselves um, you know, maybe it just invokes images the word kingdom of, of sort of fairy tale castles or, or, or computer games even but for Jesus's definition and our understanding we have to go back to the very beginning the genesis of the whole story when out of an abundance of generosity, from the overflow of a relational love at the heart of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God creates the universe. And what he creates in doing that is his kingdom, where he rules. But in creating everything, his desire is not to rule alone. Instead, he creates humans to share in his rule as stewards over this creation. You know, we talk about what it means to be made in the image of God. It's one of the key principles uh, that was behind the whole movement for human rights, a value which, if we leave it out, it kind of leaves that basic human rights idea out of foundation if we're all just highly evolved amoebas. To be made in God's image means to rule like he does, but under him. And the humans are given... The free choice of living in God's kingdom according to his definition of good and evil or redefining good and evil themselves. That's what the story of the tree and the fruit and the mysterious snake point to. And humans, Adam, which is as much a title as it is a name, means humanity. And Eve, again, it's a title meaning life. So if you notice, most of the names in the Bible in the Old Testament are used repeatedly, but Adam and Eve are only used just this once. Go figure. So Adam and Eve, a.k.a. human life, choose option B. Redefine good and evil. And the consequences are the kingdom of heaven, that sphere of God's rule and reign, his life and love, and the kingdom of men, humans rewriting the rules largely to assert their own needs over the needs of others these two are separated it's been described as a kind of a hostile takeover and the consequences are well pretty bad you know for the long-term picture of how this has worked out see the news you know as much today as at any time so God's holy goodness and the evil consequences of humans rejecting rejection of that cannot inhabit that same space. So humans and the creation that they rule are sent into a sort of spiritual exile, a spiritual death. But right from the start, God sets a plan in motion to reassert his kingdom, his rule. He does it through 
Choosing a family who he calls to be a nation to model what his rule and reign look like. But they fail. Time and again, he rescues his people from the mess that they get themselves into. And the pattern is he, he rescues them, they, they proclaim God as king again, and then they commit to doing life and community his way. And then it goes wrong. That's a story on repeat. Mess up, face the consequences, call out to God, look for his return as king. And this follows through all these multiple occupations where a king is imposed on them, Assyrian, Babylonian, Medo-Persian. And when Jesus arrives on the scene, it's Roman. Caesar Augustus. And we looked a few weeks ago at this proxy king, uh, Herod, to whom the Magi inquire about the newborn king of the Jews, which set off a chain of events, including this slaughter of children. This should remind us, um, we talked about how Jesus, in Matthew, showing us Jesus is a new Moses. The slaughter of children reminds us of Pharaoh and the Exodus story. If we had more time, we'd look at that. Slaughter of innocence starts with Pharaoh, the prototype human king in the Bible. And it's a theme which continues to this day. Again, look at what the rulers of the earth are doing. Human kings and rulers tend to prop up their power at the expense of others, which is the polar opposite of what Jesus is going to teach and model. I'm getting ahead of the story there because, you know, it's into this cycle of human failure and the consequences and kings being imposed on them and looking for God's chosen king to come and save them. This is what Jesus is stepping into. And the people of Galilee are steeped in this story, this narrative of kingdoms as they watch the Roman occupiers marching around. The separation of heaven and earth, the absence of God's rule and reign and the consequences. And they've written and memorized this poetry, inspired words of the prophets like Isaiah, who Matthew quotes here, um, saying, land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, this place where Jesus has come, um, this sort of cultural and political backwater but the very place where Jesus rocks up. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. In other words, and you look at those words in a, in a wider context, it means this, a king is coming. If you're a fisherman in Galilee, then this is your hope. This is what you're looking for. This is what you're living for. So this is the context This is the place where Jesus shows up and this is the core of his message. This is his starting line. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In other words, heaven is coming back to earth. This is the undoing of Genesis 2. Repent, think again for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The king is here. And you know, Jesus doesn't get executed by the Romans for his teachings, you know, as if do to others as you would have them do to you is enough to get him killed. Jesus doesn't present himself as just a moral teacher. He sets himself up as a king coming to rule, bringing the kingdom of heaven back to earth. That's his mission. That's why he's crucified, for claiming to be king. 
and reasserting God's rule. So what's this going to look like? What's this rule going to look like? That's what the, uh, everybody will be asking at this point in, in Galilee. Is he going to raise up an army? Is he going to march on Jerusalem? Is he going to go and conquer Rome? That's what the human kings would do. But immediately Matthew shows us this kingdom of heaven is something very different to the kingdoms of the earth. It's not political. It doesn't have a national structure. It has no army. Rather, it's a resistance movement, an insurgency, if you like, with followers who are invited and called, not conscripted. So Jesus calls these fishermen, I'm the king, come follow me. Give up all you know, your business, your lifestyle, even your family, and come and follow me. And we've talked about this a lot. This is, um, if, you're, if you're new to All Souls, this is kind of the basis, really, for our vision and our mission as a church. It's about our response to Jesus' invitation to come and follow him, to be his disciples. What does this kingdom look like then? Verse 23, Jesus goes throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, the religious gathering place, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. So teaching and proclaiming. And this kingdom is so different to the culture of that day that it takes a lot of explaining. This is what we're going to see over the next three chapters of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, um, some of Jesus' most famous teachings as we move into Lent. It's Jesus' teaching of this upside-down kingdom with radically different approaches to power, whether poor in spirit are the most important. And asserting your rule means serving others at the expense of your own interests, just like Jesus. It's a total reversal of human ideas of rule and reign. What does it mean to live under the reign of this king? And what does it mean for Jesus to be king? Well, Jesus is going to talk about uncomfortable and personal things, matters of the heart. He's going to talk about our bodies and sex and money and people who you don't like. Redefining what it means to truly live and thrive. So the kingdom looks like teaching and proclaiming a different way of living, uh, but it also looks like this, like healing, bringing health to the sick and relief of pain and suffering and freedom to the spiritually trapped. Again, see the contrast with human kingdoms. You know, look at Putin. His kingdom is established and built on the sacrifice of others, of innocence, just like Pharaoh, just like Herod, hundreds of thousands of dead and wounded, his own people and others. You know, look at Iran, look at Syria. But it's not just tyrants that think this way. You know, the head, head of the British army was quoted as saying recently that we need to think about raising a, a citizen army to defend this kingdom. Now that may be true in a geopolitical sense, but it's not how the kingdom of heaven is built and defended. Jesus' kingdom confronts the effects of evil, but not by military conquest. And it raises up the poor and the marginalized, the disadvantaged. It transforms people. Somebody said, nobody walks away from Jesus unchanged. And the crowds flock. You know, they're hungry for this new kind of kingdom. They're not imposed by force or coercion, but invited by the least threatening king you could imagine. 
a laborer walking around a lake, healing and teaching and calling people like fishermen to head up his team. It's a totally different kind of kingdom. Just sort of final thing before we move on to sort of just some applications to finish. So Napoleon uh, famously said, you may know this quote, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men and women would die for him. So where does that leave us? Um, I think we've all got a choice to face. We face it daily. It's a... Same choice that Adam and Eve faced. It's the choice that God's people faced throughout the Old Testament. It's the choice those around Galilee faced when Jesus showed up and started proclaiming the kingdom of heaven has come near. Whose kingdom are we living for? Are we prepared to do things God's way? To let him be king, radical and different, hard as that is? Or will we insist on redefining good and evil on our own terms? In the coming weeks, we're going to be challenged. I know I've said this before, but there's this funny relationship between the values of the kingdom of heaven and the United Kingdom. In many ways, Jesus' teaching has been the historic bedrock of our laws and values and the basis for human rights and relationships. But increasingly, we've moved away from that into a culture centered around personal fulfillment and a freedom which only seems to lead people into slavery. And yes, the Church of England is particularly caught up in this in the way that we are the established church of this country. You know, we need to recognize that the church does not have a monopoly on the kingdom of heaven. By which I mean it has often, right from the early church in the New Testament, failed to live as if Jesus is king. We have a choice to make. Who is our king? Assuming for a moment that our answer to that question is Jesus, that we want to live under his rule and reign and live like the kingdom of heaven is near, then what is our response? I think we state our allegiance. And one way we do that is in worship. Um, as we kind of start our services, in, um, as we will again in a minute. Sometimes, you know, worship just is something that can flow from the heart, you know? Um, at other times, it's best described as a sacrifice of praise. It's a sacrifice because our lips sing words that our hearts struggle to follow or are hard against. And it's in that time, in that place, that worship becomes a costly choice to state our allegiance. Secondly, I remember that this kingdom that we're just looking at what we saw Jesus doing. It's about healing and freedom and coming to Jesus. That's what's on offer um, at all times, but also when we come to church and specifically um, when, we, when we pray with people over here, with this area that we've set aside for that, where people will be ready to pray for you for anything and for everything that you want to bring to Jesus this morning. You know, we do this out in the open, uh, not to make us feel like you, you were on display, but just to say that this is absolutely a normal part of what it means to be God's people together, to respond to Jesus' call, to come to him, to do business with him together, not sort of hidden away somewhere else. You know, maybe you think, can't I just do that from where I'm sitting or standing? And the answer is, of course, you can. But there is something important for us, um, I think, and just so I come into land, just responding by 
getting up and moving sometimes. You know, think of it like Simon and Peter and Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John in this story when they actually got out of their boats to follow Jesus. You know, they could have stayed comfortably mending their nets and asked Jesus to talk to them while they were doing it. But he called them out and they followed. Maybe he's calling you out today uh, to respond to him.